Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, and Happy New Year. I wasn't here last week, so I wasn't able to tell everybody that, but Happy New Year. So we will be in Romans chapter 6 again this morning, finishing up that chapter. So let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we can get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. We just give you praise for another opportunity that we have to be together as a body of believers. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning, the time we have to be in your word. Pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. Pray that you would give us understanding into the book of Romans as we study through these great passages that uh, Paul has for us here in this wonderful letter. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, understanding into it, Lord. Help us to see our position and our uh, responsibilities as your children. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to just live our lives for you. Um, as believers, and help us, Lord, to just honor you in all things. Lord, we just thank you again for our time. Pray, Lord, now as we study your word, that you would just uh, help us to understand. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 6. It is not an exaggeration to say that sin is the worst issue that the world has ever known. It has consequences of keeping a person separated from God for all eternity, condemning that person to an eternal hell. The severity of which, when we think of hell, we can't even really possibly imagine to its fullest extent. But when a person has been chosen by God, has been saved by God, has been brought to the point in their life where they have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been sanctified, set apart by God, then they have been set free from that condemnation and they have been given over to a new life, a new life that comes only through the power of God. This is the point that Paul has brought us to in the sixth chapter of Romans. Having experienced justification through faith presented in the preceding chapters, what is the character of that new life that we now have, the responsibilities that we have of that new life? The aspect of the Christian life that answers the question, what now? What are we to be like now? The Christian life, or the Christian, has been crucified with Christ. And that means that all that we were before, as unbelievers, has been crucified. And that none of that matters anymore in our lives. It is this crucifixion, our death, that frees us from what we were before, including living under the power of of sin. If we get anything out of this chapter, chapter 6 here, it has to be that fact that we are free from the power of sin. We do not have to sin as believers in Jesus Christ. When you think of Romans chapter 6, think that's the chapter that tells me that I've been freed from sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was Paul's line of thinking from verses 1 through verse 14 that it all came down all came down in verse 14 when he tells us that sin isn't our master because we are now under grace. The grace of God gives us the ability. It enables us to live lives that are free from sin. And that is the part of the free gift or it is part of the free gift that God has given to us as those who have believed in the gospel of his son. 
And that discussion that we had in those first 14 verses brought us down to verse 15 where he asks another question. He asked a question in verse 1. He asked another question in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Here he was asking the question, is it all right for a believer, one who is no longer under the law, under the power of sin, to sin on occasion? Since we are free, are we free now to sin occasionally? Now and then, can we indulge in the occasional sin? Is that all right for us to do? The response, may it never be. Even that thought is thoroughly repulsive. The believer's new life and sin should never be seen as two things that are compatible with one another. They should never be seen as something that is all right to mix, all right to indulge in, even on an occasional basis, because just because now we say we have freedom. That's what people like to think today, however, and not just today, but they've thought for years and years, that freedom means that we can do whatever we want. That's how people define freedom. We can do whatever we want to do. Some people think that being under grace and not under law means that we don't have any responsibilities now. That the law meant that a person had to serve God, but that they aren't under the law anymore. Now they don't have to do anything. There are no rules. There are no obligations because there's only freedom because we are now under grace. That's not the picture that Paul is presenting here in Romans chapter 6. He went into great detail presenting the case of the believer being dead to sin in the first 14 verses of the chapter. <clears throat> Verse 2 said, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 6, Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Verse 7, He who has died is free from sin. Verse 11, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. It was a pretty clear delineation that Paul was talking about. Having died with Christ, baptized by the Spirit into his death, burial, and resurrection, our relationship to sin has died. Now here in these last nine verses, he has another prevalent theme that he presents. A theme of slavery. He mentioned it in verse 14, but he continues on with it in the last part of the chapter. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Mention it again down in verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There are only two kinds of people in the world, right? People say that all the time. There's two kinds of people, and they use different examples. But here, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of righteousness. People don't like to hear this. People don't like to hear it because they want to think that they are completely free. That they're not slaves to anything. They like to think that they don't have to answer to anyone but themselves. Which, if we were to look back into chapter 1, that was the attitude that got everyone into trouble in the first place. 
They think, they think they don't have to answer to God. People who are worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. For the unbeliever, that's the attitude that's expected. It's what chapter 1 was describing of them. But for the believer to have this same attitude, that's part, that attitude is part of what we've been freed from. We mentioned it in our last lesson, but we have to understand what being free truly is. It's the ability to function in the way and in the relationship for which you were created. We used the example last time of a goldfish in a bowl, right? You set the goldfish free. You don't like it being in the bowl, so you take it out to the field. Throw it out into the meadow. Say, be free. Expansive open meadow, right? What could be more free than that? Is that freedom for the goldfish? Absolutely not. That's death for the goldfish, right? Why? Because it wasn't created to function and live in a big open meadow. It was created to function swimming around in water, not flopping around on the ground in a meadow. Other creatures might be free in a meadow. Release a deer out into a meadow. Release a mouse out into a meadow. They'd be fine out there. Because that's how God created them to function. So true freedom is restricted by what you were created for. God created mankind to have a personal relationship with Him. When we function in that relationship, that is when we are truly free. As unbelievers, we didn't have that freedom. We were free to sin, to function in the realm of sin, but we weren't free to live a life that was pleasing to God. We didn't have that freedom. And that's because of what? Why didn't we have that freedom? It's because of our sin. Our sin carried down through Adam, which we talked about in chapter 5, took that away and brought death upon everyone. Chapter 5, verse 21 said that sin reigned in death. That's the type of slavery and freedom that we read about when we're talking here in Romans chapter 6. Those who have placed their faith in Christ have been transformed from a life of slavery to sin to a life of slavery to righteousness. We are now free to do what righteousness pleases, not free to do anything that we want to do. You have to be one or the other. You can't decide not to participate in this. There is no opting out. You're either in one camp or the other. Everyone plays this game. No one sits out. This is the contrast that Paul is drawing here as we are making our way through these final verses in chapter 6. So now we continue on, we get down to verse 19, and Paul starts here by saying, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He starts off with this phrase. In the middle of his discussion on, on slavery, Paul acknowledges that the slavery analogy is imperfect. Even in that day, slavery was something that was often associated with humiliation and degradation. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Elements that aren't present in our service to God. However, a life of obedience, of serving a master, of living a new life that belongs to someone else, all these elements are present in this analogy. That's what Paul is trying to get across here, to bring out in his analogy. 
So he uses this analogy that could be seen as imperfect. So why use it? Well, he's using it because of the weakness of their flesh, he says. The idea being that human nature produces a weakness in understanding that the use of analogies can overcome. Using terms that they know allows him to get his point across, right? This is bringing it home to them. Is Paul apologizing for using this analogy? Not at all. In fact, he continues to use it. But he does realize that it can be misconstrued to take some of the negative elements that come uh, with this analogy of slavery. We have to compare slavery uh, only to the points that he's making, being totally obedient and completely submissive to someone else. And this is one reason why people have a hard time accepting this. People don't like to get to this section of Scripture, even talking about or using this analogy. Because what do we do? We think of slavery in our own terms, right? And what we know, things that we've seen in history or on shows or movies, things like that. We think of the demeaning and inhumane aspect of it. But it's specifically that element of servitude to a master that Paul is bringing out here. What he's basically saying is that he's speaking to them so that that they can better understand the point that he's trying to get across. That point includes the responsibilities that we had before we were saved and what responsibilities we have now as those who are either in service to one master or to another master. And so he goes on in the verse, he says, For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He has a comparison here. Just as, and then later in the verse he says, so now. So here's the comparison. Just as you did this, so now do this. You are to present yourselves over to righteousness with the same wholehearted conviction that you gave to sin when you were still in your unbelief. As dedicated as we were to sin before, we need to be dedicated to God in the same way now. Before, we were in slavery to impurity and lawlessness, he says. Inward sins and outward sins, respectively. It's the complete package here. As unbelievers, we had dedicated ourselves to sin of every kind. Our minds, our hands, our bodies, all of our members were willingly given over to sin. We were the faithful slave of sin. It's true we had a sin nature. It's true that we were lost in our sins, but that doesn't excuse that we, that we indulged our own desires when we sinned. We did that willingly. And what does that do? Right? What results in us indulging in our own desires and indulging in our own sins? Further lawlessness. Indulging in sin is a snowball rolling downhill. Right? It builds up speed and it keeps growing as it grows. Right? We've all seen that in now, I don't know if a snowball actually does that, but in cartoons anyway, you see that, right? It rolls down the hill and it just gets bigger and bigger. But the point is, nothing good ever comes from sin. It only breeds more sin. You never get to the point where you can be said, oh, look, I've sinned so much that something good came out of it. Oh, it finally got to the point where something great came out of this sin that I've been, that I've been involved in. It doesn't work that way. In fact, remember, that's what Paul was arguing against here. Remember his first question in the chapter, back up in verse 1, he said, are we to continue in sin that grace may 
increase because previously he had talked about how with an increase of sin, increase of trans transgressions, there was an increase in grace. So people would ask the question, well, maybe we should keep sinning so that grace increases. Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. Sin never improves anything. It only serves to bring about more and more and more sin, more lawlessness. This is the condition of the world in which we live. The, the world has been given over to lawlessness. This is why it's pointless to think that more laws will turn this world around, will turn even our own country around, right? That's how we tend to think, right? We can litigate our country into morality. This world is deteriorating. In case we haven't noticed, if anybody hasn't noticed that, this world is deteriorating. Things that 50 years ago, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago were considered immoral by most people have become commonplace today. It's rampant. Turn on the news, it's rampant. Homosexuality has become so accepted today that it's difficult to watch any show or movie without having it shoved in your face. You watch an ad anymore. I get to the point where I see an ad or a commercial and I just see two guys in the ad and I don't even know what the commercial's about and I don't even hear what they're saying. I just see two guys in it and my first thought is, what are they trying to convey? Who are these guys? Are they friends or are they supposed to be married? You just don't know anymore. Criminals being allowed to walk free today with just a slap on a wrist. We're getting to the point where we're letting, let's just let them go free. People getting in trouble for wanting to protect children from being mutilated today. If you were to go back in time, and I know this isn't possible, but if you were to go back in time 50 years, and you were to talk to somebody about the things that we have going on today, they'd think you were insane, right? And you know what? They're right. Because it's insanity what kinds of sins the world is calling normal and acceptable today. And it makes you wonder, it makes you cringe what kinds of things that we still hold as safe, still hold as protected today, murders, rapes, abuse against children, things like that, that we still generally say those things are horrible things and everyone agrees on. What's going to happen 50 years from now? How is that going to change? Is it going to change? Who knows? The track record isn't looking very good, is it? But when we think about these things, and you can tell even I get worked up about these things, what's our first thought? Let's do something about this. Let's organize. Let's put an end to this. I'll bet more than a few people of us here in this room were watching with bated breath this last week as we were trying to figure out who's going to be the leader in the House of Representatives. Trying to get the right guy for the job into that position so that they can work out and try to get some things accomplished, right? But is that really what is needed? Is passing laws going to fix the moral ills of our country, of the world? Unfortunately, that's not going to do it. It might stem the tide for a bit, but laws aren't what stop impurity and lawlessness. What stops it? Baptism into the death of Jesus Christ that comes through justification, which comes through faith in his gospel. What stops these things is the message 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes the heart of the one believing in it. The world is lawless. The world is depraved. God has given the sinners over to their sin, to the futility of their own minds. The word... The words that Paul is using here in verse 19, impurity and lawlessness, this really takes us back as a picture of what we saw in the first two chapters when he was presenting the depraved condition of the world. If you remember in chapter 1, talking about those who had no special revelation from God but denied the creation, um, denied the very creation itself, thus denying the Creator, Paul said that God had given them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then we get to chapter 2, where we start talking about people that have been given special revelation, who had been given more information, had, God had revealed himself to them. The Jews had been given what? The law. They'd been given the law by God. And even they disobeyed it. They took the perfectly revealed law of God, and even that they didn't keep. The unbelieving world is characterized by impurity and lawlessness, disobeying God no matter the circumstances. This is the world in which we once belonged, but now no longer belong. But we still function here, don't we? We're still here. A believer in the world is like a fish out of water. We don't belong here. And this world is going to continue to get worse until the day when Jesus Christ returns to rule and reign in it. Only then will it get better, and only then will we be able to have what we think of as a Christian nation. So impurity and lawlessness result in further lawlessness. But what are we to be doing? Right? That's the contrast. That's the old self. That's that's the unbelieving world. But what are we to be doing as those who have been justified? Just as committed to sin as we were before, just as faithful as we were to sin before, so now we need to be committed to righteousness. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. This is what we are commanded to do. This shows personal accountability on our part. We are commanded to live in this way. This is just like he said back up in verse 13 of the chapter. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are not to go back to what we did before. Living like we did before. Indulging in the same activities that we did before. We are to press on, submitting ourselves as slaves to righteousness, presenting the members of our body, this flesh in which we still live, as instruments to be used in a righteous life. This is the training that we must submit our bodies to. In our unbelief, our bodies of flesh were trained to be instruments used in sinful deeds. Right? We used our bodies in sinful things, and as The more and more and more sin that people get involved in, the the less their conscience bothers them in those sins. They were training their bodies to adopt sin, to live sinful lives. Now we retrain our bodies. We must present them as instruments to be used for righteous deeds, to be used in obedience to our Lord and Savior. 
Our lives now belong to God. And therefore, our bodies we indwell must come along for that ride, right? They're part of us. Is it always easy? We talked before about how don't confuse easy and simple, right? It's a simple concept, just do it, but it's not always an easy concept. There's work involved here. There's resisting to temptation that's involved here, but the work pays off. He says here it results in sanctification. Direct contrast with what sin resulted in, right? More sin, sins resulted in more lawlessness. Doing righteousness results in our sanctification, holiness of life. Positionally, right? We talk about positional and practical aspects of, of things. Positionally, we are both righteous and holy, right? That's the position that, we've in, that we're in. We've talked about that before. Having been justified, we are righteous, right? That's what justification is, if you remember. Being declared to be righteous is what justification is. We are declared righteous. That is our position in Christ. So now we are to live out that righteousness. Present ourselves as slaves to that righteousness. Doing that righteousness. Now also positionally, we talk about our holiness. We have been sanctified, set apart. But there is a practical sense of that as well that comes about in our daily lives. Practicing righteousness, living in obedience to God, produces holiness in us as well by doing righteous things, by living an obedient life. This is our ongoing practical or sometimes say progressive sanctification that continually sets us apart as holy for God in all that we do. This is the life of the believer. Remember, this is all post-salvation. After salvation, after we have already been justified, we have already been set apart for God in holiness. This is Paul telling believers how to live the Christian life, not how to obtain the Christian life. So now, in our daily walk, we are to be submitting ourselves to God for obedience and living daily as slaves of righteousness, doing righteousness. We need to be careful with this. I stress this because there's clarification. Because many people miss the point and they want to say, well, now what you're talking about, you're talking about legalism. Because they don't understand how being under grace, can, God can require any, anything of us. God can require us to do anything. Their tendency is to say that he doesn't require us to do anything because we can't improve our position in any way or, or by doing any work. Well, and that's true. We can't. We don't improve our position or our standing before him. We already stand as holy before God. We already stand as righteous before God. But the question is, do we live holy all the time? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we say no, not in every circumstance. And it's that living aspect that Paul is talking about here. There is a process that we go through to make ourselves more obedient in our daily walk, to make ourselves purer in our daily walk. This involves living by doing certain things, living a certain way. Look with me over to the book of Titus. Look at Titus chapter 2. look at a couple of passages that talk about this same thing. The Christian life involves living a certain way. 
Look down at verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace has appeared, appeared, right? Bringing salvation. And here he talks about what salvation involves. It it involves denying everything that is ungodly, worldly desires, right? That's on one side. That's the things that we leave behind. But on the other side, living a certain way, sensibly, righteously, and godly. And some might take those things and say, well, I can be all those things without doing anything. But look at the next set of verses, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What was the reason that he gave himself for us? To redeem us from every lawless deed, the old things that we did before, these were our sins, and to purify us as a people who are what? Zealous for good deeds. Those are actions. Those are works of righteousness. We are to be zealous for works of righteousness. Can you be zealous for something and not want to do it? I don't know how that would work. If I'm zealous for something, I would do it at every opportunity that I have. This is what the believer, the one who has been enslaved to righteousness, has been purified to be, one who is zealous for good deeds. Ephesians 2. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. We've been here several times, so... Look down at verse 8. Very familiar verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Very familiar passage. Tells us that we are not saved by works. We cannot boast in our salvation because of anything that we have done. We brought nothing to the table ourselves. But too often we stop with verse 9. Go on to verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, we weren't saved by good works. He made that clear in verse 9. But we were created for good works. You see the pattern here. There is a definite concept throughout Scripture that those whom God has justified called to be his very own and saved to be his very own or to live a certain way, to do certain things, deeds of righteousness. We are to live in obedience and servitude to our Lord. And it's not something that would just be a nice to do. Oh, I should do that. It's what we were created for. It's what we were redeemed for. Jesus makes a simple statement about this in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is an expectation of obedience for those that love and belong to Christ. 
submitting ourselves to righteousness for obedience results in a progression of our sanctification. As we progress in our sanctification, we will grow daily, conforming more and more to the image and the righteousness of God in our daily lives and distancing ourselves further and further away from sin. That's how growth occurs in the Christian life. This is where Christians want to be. This is where every Christian should be. We want to, we want to take care of all the problems in our life. We want to do away with sins in our life. We want to know how to have, how, how have and live in peace in our lives. right? We, we ask these questions and we go to books. Right? And we listen to all sorts of speakers to hear what steps we need to go through to take care of all of these issues. Oftentimes, we do everything that we possibly can except open up our Bibles. All too often, the Bible is the last place that we go to to find out what we need to do. Well, here it is. Present your members as slaves of righteousness, and the result will be sanctification. This is our responsibility as believers. Make your body do what is right. Don't say that sentence. Don't ingest that substance. Don't look at that picture. Do open your Bible. Do love your wife. Do submit to your husband. Do serve in the church. It's right here. It's what Paul is talking about here. Now in verses 20 and 21 back in Romans 6, if you're not back there. He refers back to the old way once again. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. As a slave of sin, there was freedom, but not the type of freedom that people think that they have. They were free from righteousness. We were free from having to do anything that was pleasing to God. We had been given over to sin completely. It would completely and absolutely dominated us. Remember what we read before in verse 7? He said, For he who has died is freed from sin. Having died with Christ, we are now dead to sin. Therefore, we are free in regard to sin. Well, it works both ways. Lost in sin, man is spiritually dead. Being spiritually dead, he is free from righteousness. He has nothing to do with it. Sin has the unbeliever's total allegiance. The unbeliever doesn't serve God, doesn't want to serve God. They may go through the motions. They may talk about serving God. They may tell themselves that they're, that they're trying to please God. But in reality, they're serving themselves, right? Saying that they are trying to please God without pleasing God His way isn't pleasing to Him at all. This shows the complete separation from one realm to the other. They are totally set apart one from the other. The unbeliever has his freedom. Only the freedom he has means that he is destined to be eternally separated from God. That's what he's free from. We see the consequence or the outcome of this in verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now Ashamed, for the outcome of those things is death. The benefit, word for benefit here is fruit. What fruit were you deriving? What was the old life producing? Was there anything good that came out of your past life 
under sin? The answer is no. When you were under the authority of sin, you were committing sin. Impurity and lawlessness is what characterized your life. We might say, but not everything that I did was sinful. But in reality, it was. Because it was done while you were in rejection and disobedience to God. Nothing you did before was considered righteous. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. There was nothing good, no good fruit that came from us. You note here how Paul characterizes the things that you did before, the things that you did in your past life as an unbeliever, things of which you are now ashamed, he says. One of the things that distinguishes the believer and the unbeliever is that a believer is ashamed of his sin and ashamed of his past life of sin. When the believer sins, there's remorse, there is guilt and shame associated with it. There is a need to repent of it that comes out of our new heart. We are remorseful that we sinned. For the unbeliever, it isn't so. Among them, sin is something that they're proud of. People bragging about their sinful acts. The prophet Jeremiah, when talking about the sinful acts of Judah, says in Jeremiah 8.12, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. There was no shame in the abominable things that they were doing. They didn't even know how to be ashamed of them, to blush over them. They were so entrenched in it. I remember back when I was in college, uh, I was in a class one day, and a student had come in, and his face was all messed up. Right? He was black and blue, he had scabs on his face, and I don't remember if he was missing teeth or not, but anyway, he looked like he'd been in, in a fight. But he was the center of attention for this large group of people, 10, 12 people, something like that, uh, were all hanging around him, and everybody wanted to know what's going on, what happened. And I could hear him from the back of the room, right? In fact, they were like in front of the front door. This was after class. They were in front of the door, so you couldn't actually leave the room because this group had congregated up there. But anyway, there wasn't much of a story. Um, basically, he had gone out a few nights before, and he had literally gotten passed out drunk. And he was standing in the street, and he just passed out, and he face-planted right into the curb. And this crowd thought this was the greatest thing that they'd ever heard. They were, oh, you know, they were, this was like wonderful. And he was pretty proud of himself for, he was laughing about it. And I just thought, what an idiot. This guy's just, he's bragging about this story of him just getting drunk, passing out and messing up his face in a curb. There's no shame in it for him. It was, it was, for him, it was a cool story to share with everybody. They have shows out now. They've had these things for a long time. You've probably seen them or seen ads for them, hopefully not the shows, but they're celebration of partying and immoral behavior, right? You, you, you see ads for shows now where it's, oh, this group of people that goes to this island and they're just out there having sex with each other or whatever. And you think, this is what is celebrated today. This is, this is the celebrated lifestyle today that people want to engage in and watch. 
But for the believer, this is part of the old man. This is part of what has died for us. And the believer looks back on those things with shame, past and present. It isn't something to boast about. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to constantly be looking back at our past lives, our past sins, and be feel, and feeling bad about everything that we did before. Those sins are paid for. Those sins are dead to us. But it means that we don't look back at these things fondly. I would hope that for the guy in my college class, I have no idea who he was, didn't even know his name, but he, if he ever came to saving faith, I would hope that that is not a story that he still tells that he would be ashamed to tell that story today. The end of verse 21, where do these things lead? Paul says the outcome of those things is death. This is where all sin leads, to death. That is the only possible outcome for sin. We saw this earlier, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience. Being a slave of sin results in death. But the contrast to this is in verse 21. He says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life having been transformed from that previous life, enslavement to sin, we have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That's the only other possibility, right? There's no middle ground. There's no, I went off and did my own thing. It's one or the other. We are called to be consistent in our lives as believers. Before, when slaves of sin, we were free from righteousness and we did those things of which we are now ashamed. That was the consistent pattern of our lives. When we were unbelievers, did we do good? Did we serve righteousness? Did we ever do any of those things? We never did good. Our righteous deeds were like a filthy garment. There is none who does good, no, not one. We were useless before God. How often did we sin? All the time. Everything in the believer does, the believer does is sin because he lives his life in rebellion to God. Anyone who has never accepted the gospel and become saved is in rebellion to God, and their life is a life of sin. It is from our new relationship, our slavery to God, that we derive our benefit, our fruit. Right? That's the same word that we had before in the last verse where he talked about the fruit produced from sin. Now it's fruit produced by being enslaved to God. Fruit is produced in a life. Every life has fruit. It's just a question of what kind of fruit is it. Turn over to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about fruit, what fruit a tree produces. A tree produces. Um, this is an analogy here. I told you a few weeks ago about my the apple tree that we had in our at our last house, and that I didn't know it was an apple tree until one year it produced apples. Right. The same type of recognition is is seen and used here. Look at verse fifteen of Matthew seven. 
He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? What do we see here? We're seeing a recognition. Recognition of who they are by what they produce, by their fruit. And that's our word that we have for benefit in Romans 6. Fruit. You have a grape? Where do you know that grape came from? It didn't come from a thorn bush. It came from a grapevine, right? Not a grape tree, a grapevine. Look at verse 17. We see there is a difference there. It says, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. What's this tell us? He's telling us that what a person does reveals what they really are, what is produced in their life. A good tree, one that is righteous, cannot produce bad fruit. Doesn't mean that there's not a a bad apple here or there. Doesn't mean that there's not a branch that's died. Doesn't mean that something doesn't go wrong. There's an anomaly somewhere, right? But a bad piece of fruit is not normal. For the most part, that tree produces good fruit. In the same way, a bad tree can't produce bad, can't produce good fruit. He's talking about false prophets. He's talking about those who claim to believe but don't. We saw that back up in verse 15. He continues on by talking about those who stand before God, claims, claiming to have lived their life for Him, but in the end, what does He say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You get the same idea. The fruit shows the true heart of the person. What we do comes from who we are. One other passage. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Those things that are produced in a Spirit-filled life. And and he shows a contrast here as well. If you look down at verse 16 of Galatians 5, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He presents a contrast in his argument here, which is basically the same as what he's presenting in Romans. Living as a believer, not as an unbeliever. Now, if you skip down to verse 19, he starts talking about things that are true of those in the flesh. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do we have here? We have a list of sins. These are the fruits, you could say, of the flesh. He doesn't use that word for this. But they're the deeds of the flesh. Things that are done by those who are in the flesh. That are under its control. Under its authority. This is synonymous with being under sin. Paul will talk later on in Romans about the contrast between being in the Spirit and being in the flesh. That will come out when we get to chapter 8. But the contrast is the same. Here it's living as one who has been enslaved to sin. But then he goes down, says in verse 21, but the fruit, and that's the same word that we've been seeing, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, these are characteristics that manifest themselves in the life of the believer, of one who has been justified. This is our fruit. It is seen by what we do, by our deeds and actions. While we're here, you note verse 24, which is a familiar concept. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's our delineation once again. The power that the flesh had over us has been crucified. It's been done away with. That power no longer exists in our life. Doesn't mean that we're not still in the flesh. We'll talk about that later on. But it has no power over us. The same idea that we've been seeing in Romans chapter 6. We have died to sin, and therefore we no longer obey it, but obey righteousness instead. We won't turn there, but you can jot down Philippians 1.22 as well. In Philippians 1.22, when Paul is in prison and awaiting word on whether or not he will be executed, Right? He's sitting there talking. He's torn about what he wants. If I'm executed, I'll be with the Lord. Because to die would mean that he would be with the Lord. But in verse 22 of Philippians 1, he says, if I am to live on in the flesh, and that means just if I'm to, to stay here and live on and not die, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Paul knows that the Christian life is one of works, of labor, of deeds, things that we are to do. He sees the opportunity to keep on living here in this world as an opportunity to labor fruitfully for the Lord. This is how we ought to view our time here on earth as well. While we are still here on earth, a time to serve the Lord in righteousness. It's time of fruitful ministry that glorifies God, that serves to benefit the church and the ministry of the gospel. As slaves of God, we are able to produce this fruit through our service to Him. Back in Romans 6, if you're not there already. What is the result of this fruit? Sanctification. Again, we have the sanctified life. The fruit that we produce as believers through living a life of service to God results in our sanctification. The more and more and more we serve our Lord, walk according to His Word, do the deeds of righteousness that He has laid out for us to do, and further, the further along we progress in our sanctification. And as believers, we find it becomes easier and easier to continue on with that path because it's like... I said before, it's like training our bodies. It becomes more and more natural for us. A life set apart for God as we follow Him, as we serve Him, we become set apart for practical service more and more and more. What's the end result of it all? Look at what he says at the end of verse 22. The outcome, eternal life. When all is said and done, we have eternal life. This is the end of the work. This encompasses everything that we have now and into eternity. The outcome of sanctification is glory. This is the hope that we have. We saw that all the way back at the beginning of chapter 5. We have P 
peace with God. We stand in His grace and we exult in hope of His glory. This is where Paul is building to as we get closer to Romans chapter 8 where we'll see that the end result is for the Christian life. Living a life that is not only free from the penalty and the power of sin, but also free from its very presence. The contrast that we've seen here so far, slavery to sin brings about lawless deeds which results in death. But slavery to God brings about righteous deeds which results in sanctification and the glorified eternal life. Verse 23, very familiar verse. Paul sums this up in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin here is personified, viewed as the master that pays wages of death. What you get for your service to sin, what you get in thanks for your sin, is death. It is earned. It is deserved. On the other hand, we have the free gift of God. Notice, this isn't a wage. This isn't something earned. It isn't anything that a person earns like death is earned. This is totally and completely free. This goes along with what we learned in chapters 3 through 5, that justification is apart from any kind of work. A person is not justified by works of any kind, and you cannot claim that your salvation was earned in any way. You don't deserve it. It has been freely given to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. What is this gift? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It isn't just living forever. It's living forever in Him, just as we've been saying. It's not just a life that I can live forever free from anything and everything that I want to do. It's living life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our new life isn't for us. We weren't saved to go out and do whatever we want to do. It's not centered around us. That's how our life was before, centered in and around ourselves. That led us nowhere. That led us to slavery that resulted in death. This new life, this eternal life, is new life that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This sums up the whole chapter nicely. We've gone from having earned a death, that's what we deserved on our own merits, to now being freely given eternal life in Christ, who is our Lord. He is now our master. Our lives have been given over to him. There are believers who say, I don't think I should have to give my life to him. They don't understand. If they have truly believed in the gospel, their life already has been given over to him. There is no concept in scripture of someone who has put their faith and trust in Christ, but is not subject to him for obedience. The life of a believer is a sanctified life. We are to be growing and maturing and setting ourselves apart for service to God every day of our lives. A big part of this has to do with how we conduct ourselves when it comes to sin. We are free from sin. It has absolutely no power over someone who belongs to Christ. We need to remember that when temptation arises. We need to remember, we need to consider the fact that we do not have to give in to temptation. We don't have to do it. 
all the excuses we make for it, all the reasons that we come up that we can come up with for why we might sin, it totally comes down to because that's what we chose to do. We never have to do it as a believer in Jesus Christ. We can read all the books we want to with how to deal with specific sins, but what it really comes down to is that we have the God-given ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to refuse to act upon any sin and to focus all of our service and energy upon Him. And that is truly living a sanctified life. Let's close in a word of prayer.